Hello and welcome to the February edition of Cinetopia. We've got a busy schedule this month with new team members, best picture winners and upcoming film festivals. We'll be reviewing the history-making Parasite from Bong Joon-ho, as well as discussing the recent Oscar ceremony that saw it crowned Best Picture. We'll also be reviewing upcoming releases, Portrait of a Lady, On Fire, and Little Joe, interviewing Lily Sandilin of Iberodox, and recommending some short films you can find online. In addition to me, Paul Bruce, we've got returning team members Amanda, Jim, Carice and Serena, and we've also got two new faces in, Mark Nelson and Betty Stoinich. So Amanda, have you had a good month so far and what have you been up to? I have. We've been doing a lot of events. We had our networking event and we also um, did a sold out a uh, few screenings at Lee Theatre, um, as well as we're about to do three more events at Lee Theatre next month and more networking and so keep wow, at it. Yeah, busy. Yeah, absolutely. What's, uh, what's happening next month? What are the so three we run a, we run a, a Sunday matinee that's sort of an intergenerational sort of classic cinema but it's trying to bring out people of all ages to come together and on the first that's going to be um, Mary Poppins and then on the second we're doing our second ever um, cine quiz which we'll be talking a little bit later with Lily because she's put that whole together and then on the sixth we're doing a, um, a, a live score to the 1928 Germaine du Lac um, feminist surrealist film The Seashell and the Clergyman. Um, we're collaborating with two really um, amazing uh, female musicians, Bell Lungs and Aurora Engine. And we're also working with young programmers uh, who also have been creating this new film journal uh, called The Debutante, um, who are also film exhibition curation students. And they'll be programming a, sh a, a selection of short uh, feminist surrealist films. It's all in celebration of International Women's Day. So that's the 6th of March at Lee Theatre. So look out for that on Lee Theatre's website or you can go to Cinetopia's website. And, and that's all happening at Lee Theatre? Yeah, that's oh, Friday. Okay. Yeah, and then finally on the 25th of March we are uh, screening With Nail and I, which seems to be um, quite popular so far. Tickets yeah. seem to be selling quite well. Great, sounds good. Can't wait to see them. Kay. Thanks for that, Amanda. Jim, okay, so how have you been this month? Fine. Uh, I've been trying to review a whole bunch of Sundance screeners and I've not managed to get through them and I've got a big to-do list uh, as long as my arm, as they say. Uh, but, yep, good month for cinema. Great. We'll be talking about some of the good films that are coming out and are already out, so overall Great. pretty good. Good stuff. Good. Well, we'll look forward to hearing about those later. And Carice, welcome aboard and tell me about your month. Has it been a good one? Hi, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, not as busy as my, my colleagues, but um, looking forward to the Edinburgh Festival season starting to gear up now that all of the you know Toronto and Sundance and that are over um, so we're obviously been having some conversations about the, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival program this year um, starting to get that 10th anniversary um, planned uh, and obviously carrying on my work over at the Edinburgh International Film Festival so yeah it's been a good month so far. Excellent nice to be busy better busy than bored that's what my mum used to say. So a warm welcome to uh, Serena Scateni who's with us today for a review of uh, some of the films that she's watched. Welcome Serena nice to see you here. Oh, hi, yeah, um, just back from Rotterdam, um, where I've been for the very first time, and it was like, such a great festival, I really enjoyed everything, like, from the program, the atmosphere and everything, and uh, yeah, so let's see what I'm going to do next. Um, next Sunday, I'll be off to Berlin for just um, three, four, five days, I can't even remember, and I'm really excited, because it seems like the program is uh, amazing and exceptional, so uh, yeah, so I guess... I've got a bit of like um, reviews to write and things like that. So yeah, looking good so far. 
So we'd like to welcome aboard a new face uh, with the Cinematopia team. It's Betty Stoinich. Welcome aboard, uh, Betty. And how's your 2020 going so far? Uh, thank you, Paul. It's really nice to be here. Um, I've been having a pretty hectic 2020 because I'm set to graduate this year uh, at the Department of Film Studies at the University of Edinburgh, and it's I'm scared. And <laughs> the future is uncertain, so... We'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll be just fine. But uh, thanks for coming and uh, joining the team. It's lovely to have you. Um, we'll be hearing more from you later on. Thank you, Paul. And we'd also like to introduce Mark Nelson, who is also joining the Cinetopia team, and it's his first show, so welcome aboard, Mark. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? Not bad. Yourself? And how's things with you? And what have you been up to? Yeah, not terribly not terribly bad. Um, I've mostly been watching movies for Glasgow, Glasgow Film Festival, just about to start. So I've been trying to catch up on films I haven't seen by filmmakers I know. Okay, um, so you managed to get through a lot? Uh, not as much as I wanted to, but a wee bit. Good stuff, glad to hear it. And we'll be hearing more from you a little bit later in the programme. So the next film we're going to review is Little Joe by Jessica Hausner, reviewed by Jim. Well, a few of us have seen it, but I'll give a little introduction to the film to begin with. Um, so this one premiered at Cannes earlier in the year. It's scheduled for release on February 21st, just shortly after we are broadcasting. It's basically a story about a genetically engineered plant, uh, which is designed to make the people who breathe in its, its uh, aroma, its pollen, happy um now it's basically kind of pitched as a horror film but we'll get into that in a minute and it's got some vaguely unique aspects to it uh the main person we follow is played by emily beecham who i believe won best actress at the Cannes film festival for this film and she plays one of the scientists working in this uh lab that is developing this plant her colleague is uh played by ben wishaw and basically she surreptitiously takes one of the plants home kind of against protocol and then at this point we start to notice some strange things happening to the people who have been exposed to the plant's pollen against kind of what was expected and sinister goings on and it's got a very creepy atmosphere so the other people who've seen it here are mark and betty uh mark i'll start off with you um what did you think of the film it's quite it's quite an odd film i would say it's got a lot going on but what did you take from it? Yeah, it does have it has an atmosphere of sorts, but it doesn't have as much atmosphere or as intense an atmosphere as I thought it was going to. Um, and it starts by doing a lot of kind of ominous tracking shots, which don't communicate all that much to you beyond there's a large space here which they have to traverse, which is the little laboratory where they have the plants growing. Um, and there's a bit of a funny thing where two separate species of plants are growing in the the first uh, little like industrial glass house that they have. But uh, like the two different species of plants are next to each other, and one begins kind of uh, releasing its pollen into the air, and the other begins to die because of it. And you thought, just get two different glass houses for those different species. Um, the cinematography is very interesting, as I mentioned, like those um, those long and quite slow tracking shots, which uh, get a, there's an interesting variation in them when they start framing conversations because the camera tends to just dolly forward between in the space between two characters where they're where they're talking and it's almost as though it frames their conversation so so not what the characters are doing physically that's interesting in those scenes it's literally just their words and that sort of mirrors the fact that there's a either a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist I'm not quite sure on which which uh, Lindsay Duncan's character would identify as but that this is a film sort of hinting towards psychoanalytical 
subtext, well, subtext, which just becomes text at a certain point, um, is kind of reinforced by the way in which those conversations are centered over everything else in those frames. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the fact that there's a psychoanalyst character. So there's quite a lot of layers going on here. Betty, what was your, what would you say was your biggest takeaway? What struck you about the film to begin with? Well, my sort of experience of, of this film was extremely sort of inconclusive in the sense that as a film, I wasn't especially impressed, but as a viewing experience, I thought it was pretty entertaining, whether intentionally or not. I don't know. <laughs> but it's interesting that you should mention the premise of the film. I don't generally like analysis of films on this level, but if you really think about it, having a gen genetically engineered mood-enhancing plant, which needs to promote the production of oxytocin in your body in order for you to take care of it is an incredibly high maintenance product <laughs> considering <laughs> what it's supposed to do along alongside that in terms of how it treats psychotherapy i was sort of con I, I wasn't really sure what to make of the ideas uh, in this film does do mood enhancing mood enhancing drugs make you a different person according to this film or is this just a narrative device that doesn't necessarily need to be interpreted in any which way. Stylistically speaking, I don't know how to react to a lot of the choices made here. Um, probably the most amazing one is the kabuki music, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I dare to say was even a pretty clever choice given how sort of, um, how much of a counterpoint it was to the aesthetic of the film, but also not really, because just like the aesthetic that the film was going for, um, traditional Japanese theater music is pretty minimalistic and austere in its sound. However, the rest of the aesthetic of the film, the film's style was, I felt somewhat inconsistent, um, starting with Emily Beecham's haircut, which was quite stylized, but then all of the other characters dressed pretty conventionally, for example. And scenes that were exterior shots were in no way indicative of the environment we were in, whereas the laboratory shots were all sort of dystopia light. However, all of that being said, I don't know if I can tell you not to watch it, because for, for all that it was trying to do, as a sort of cerebral, chilling sci-fi film, I think it ended up crossing the line and going into a campy sort of sci-fi flick. Like something, not to be too critical of it, but something that sort of seemed like a sci-fi B-movie from, say, the 70s or something like that. It's interesting that both of you brought up basically stylistic <laughs> elements, right? So there's the, the there's the soundtrack, there's the, the production design in terms of kind of the, the character costumes, and then also the the cinematography and the way the shots are made that, that Mark mentioned. I, broadly speaking, I like this film. Like, I, I had I had some fun with it, but it just, it, it really, to me, lacked something to hook on to narratively or thematically. Now, that's not to say that there's not things there. Um, I think in terms of the way that you talk about kind of 
mind-influencing drugs and maybe antidepressants and the effect that this plant has on people. I think the film is definitely trying to say things, but it's very focused on the style of it. Um, the, the music, as you said, is, I mean, to me, it is the dominant is the dominant thing in the film and that's not a bad thing i liked it and it suitably creeped me out way more than um you know necessarily what was happening or what is on screen but the thing that really stood out to me for this film was the product not the production design the sound design right because even the foley work which is focusing on kind of like how the plants unfurl like it's all very meticulously done and i think it creates an atmosphere very well the production design is also very particular. Um, you know, all the staff members in the lab, they're all wandering around with these like mint green lab coats on. And there's always a sense of foreboding generated with kind of like pink light in the, uh, the growing area and also other spaces. In particular, Emily Beecham's house. Uh, when she takes the plant home, it kind of sits ominously on a pedestal underneath this sort of like quite warm looking light, right? But the thing is, to me, there wasn't really a whole lot beyond that. Now, that's not to say it wasn't trying to do these things, but it just lacked a bit of punch. It lacked something for me to really hold on to, so I never really got drawn into it. I was more admiring its style throughout. Is is that what you would say was your experience, or did you get more from it than perhaps I did? Well, I, th I think there's some pleasure to be had with the performances specifically, um, although I think I would, I would probably agree with you that there's uh, the style foregrounding the substance is probably a matter of it overpowering it. Um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a, I have to say that I did enjoy the dog. Once you see a dog in a laboratory, you know it's, it's not going to end well, is it? <laughs> um, and uh, I, d I do enjoy um, I do enjoy Ben Whishaw's performance particularly too because he's he makes a very good counterpart with his performance in David Copperfield this year, where he's just playing an utter creep, kind of um, <laughs> very um, sycophantic creep, and here he's doing a, a like a, a, a sort of I think well articulated variation of that. Um, his character, I think called Chris, is. Uh, just persistent and persistent and like just about to step over the line but never quite does and Emily Beecham's the only person in the film who has a kind of like well-rounded line reading a scheme for well-rounded line readings whereas everybody else is not quite flat affect which is the thing people usually say about Jessica Hausner's movies is that they're all speaking in a monotone it's not quite that it's just that the oh the, the I don't know what you'd say the intonations are just very strangely pitched there's so this is actually the first of Jessica Hausner's films I've seen. How, how does it compare to her other work? Um, uh, hmm, yeah, interesting. The only two I've seen are Lourdes and um, Amor Fu. Amor Fu, I think, is fantastic. And that's the film where she kind of skewers German romanticism or a particular idea of German romanticism. And uh, costume dramas seem to work for her brilliantly, as evidenced by that film. But Lourdes has a kind of uh, just overly wry mocking sensibility i think so betty do you have any thoughts on that as well i actually agree that the performances were probably one of my favorite bits of the film and a lot of the lines were delivered in a way that like mark said weren't necessarily flat they were just vaguely inappropriate <laughs> for what was being said but in a way that sort of um in a way that ultimately entertained me and in, in a way that i found charming um, and I felt like Emily Beecham was the only one, the only one whose um, sort of effective performance made sense all of the time, in the sense of a ver of a very, I suppose, chilly and cold performance, but not 
to the degree that it was always unexpected or disproportionate to what was happening to her. And I can understand that her performance compared to all of the other ones fell, made it seem like her character was the only one who was believable as a human being and not as a, I suppose, person infected by a plant. Which I suppose makes sense, really, because, I mean, I suppose for much of the film, I think what it's going for is basically Invasion of the Body Snatchers, sort of, you know, Beech Grove Garden edition. Probably agreed. It's worth seeing. It's worth making your own mind up about. I don't think any of us were blown away by it, um, but... I think the standout elements are definitely the the production design, how it looks, and the the sound design. Um, you know, the, the the sort of the percussion in the music, and then also the, the sort of like the weird yapping of dogs is really quite unsettling. Um, if you if you watch the trailer, it predictably leans very heavily on that. That is going to be coming to cinemas on February twenty first. I think it's playing at the Filmhouse. Um, but certainly it is out on release shortly and you can catch it there and then no doubt it will probably be out on on demand reasonably soon after that I think but it's definitely uh, coming out so you can probably see that at at least a film house and hopefully maybe some other cinemas in and around Edinburgh Okay, so Parasite, uh, directed by Bong Joon-ho, and of course it has just won Best Picture at the Oscars, so it's making quite a lot of headlines, it's expanded to a lot more cinemas, and it's done that off the back of a very successful run, certainly for a non-English language film in the USA, looks like it's going to do the same here, and it won the Palm d'Or back at the Cannes Film Festival in May. So the basic premise is it's kind of a tale of two families, uh, the Parks and the Kims. And the Kims are a poorer family. They live in a sub-basement in in Korea. And basically, as we open the film, you get a sense for kind of their financial situation because as they are folding pizza boxes for their employer, basically somebody comes along fumigating the street and it is suggested that they close the windows, but they decide not to because they will get free fumigation for the bugs that are in their apartment. So that sets the scene quite nicely for their scenario. But shortly after that, the opportunity that transpires is a friend of the son of the family, Kiwoo, is an English tutor for a richer family who live further up the hill, the Park family, and he is departing to study abroad. So they need a new tutor, and he suggests Kiwoo as their as the tutor. He says he can give him a recommendation. His uh, sister, uh, that's Kiwoo's sister, can forge the documents and pretend that he has a degree from Oxford University and so on and so forth. So he gets the job as this family's uh, English tutor. And the matriarch of that family is a little bit uh, simple, as it's put by Min, the friend of the family, and perhaps a little bit gullible. So basically, over the course of the start of the film, the family start to kind of weasel their way into the household. Um, Parks O'Dan plays the sister, who then becomes an art therapist for the youngest child of the Park family. Only child, Illinois, Um, Chicago. (laughs) Thank you. And it kind of grows from there. I'm going to leave it there, because I think one of the things about this film is that the the less you go in knowing, I think the more you're going to uh, enjoy it. That's the basic premise, and you just say it goes and builds from there. Mark, we'll start with you, because mm-hmm. I think everybody here has seen it. Everybody's quite fond of it, I think. Mm-hmm. 
what is it about this film that you think has allowed it to kind of break through into the Oscar conversation? What is it about the film that's making it stand out? Oh, that's a very interestingly like pitched question, but I think part of the appeal is sort of a similar appeal to The Handmaiden and that it was the director's return to Korea. Um, and it was a re-entry for um, Park Chan-wook. It was the re-entry and the discussion of uh, Korean history, whereas for Bong, it's been the re-entry into Korean politics, um, sort of Korean social life. And Bong's films are, the one I haven't seen, which is um, Barking Dogs Never Bite, but Bong's films are all, I would say, visions of um, dramatized sociology. He's kind of dramatizing his vision of what the world looks like. Um, and I would say uh, Parasite does this by kind of making its narrative structure mirror its set and production design. It's in the basement, the semi-basement apartment that you mentioned, the Banjiha. Um, there's they're very cramped, and Bong's very quick to get you to almost know the spaces more than know the characters at first. Yeah, no, there's a lot of emphasis on the architecture of the mm. the, the Park family home. Yeah. It's a very unique sort of looking design. There's a lot made out about the the architect used to live in it, and the housekeeper um, has continued on into that. So there's a lot of emphasis on that as a kind of a setting. And the difference between the two as well, because the film's narrative is almost an vertiginous ascent and then a vertiginous descent in the same way that the trip up to the big park mansion is exactly that as well. Um, I'd say Bong is pretty much a genius at shot placement, um, not to speak simply about formally things, but um, he, he is a genius at where to put the camera. Even in films that don't have the same co coherence as Parasite does, Parasite is, I would say, fantastically coherent and fantastically depressing is the word I want to use. It's just a very depressing movie. Um, there's there Obviously, there's something to be said for giving people hope, but there's, there's also something to be said for telling the truth, if that's what you see the truth as, and that's what I think Bong thinks in this film. Serena, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you next, because you, you mentioned at the start of the show you were in Rotterdam, so I understand you said there's a, there's a black and white re-release of this, which has just come out in the States, and I believe that's the version you saw in Rotterdam. Yeah, it was kind of a world premiere in Rotterdam, of the black and white version. So actually, I've seen the black and white version first, and then the in color version next. And um, I kind of prefer the black and white. I'm not sure, just maybe because it was like first impression of the film. Obviously, I didn't even watch the trailer, I think, before that. So uh, I think it really, um, the color scheme, I mean, all the, uh, the grayscale and everything, I think it really uh, fit with like the, um, the plot and like the, uh, the overall the general atmosphere of the film like uh, it's a kind of a new noir and um, so it w was really great actually uh, but um, I can't go like too much details to be honest regarding like the, uh, the color palette of everything because in the end in the color version it's pretty much like that it doesn't s seem to be like something underneath in terms of like colors or color schemes, I'm not sure. Mark and I disagree. So yeah, Mark is gonna explain to everyone what he thinks about like a color scheme in Parasite. I don't know that it's so much a color scheme as it is just taking pleasure in the color specifically in the mm -hmm. uh, later section, I'll say no more. There's a lot of rainfall, I'll say nothing mm -hmm. more than that. There's a kind of harsh orange light mm. which is pervading the whole thing and it's almost, yeah. uh, I can't say this without it being a spoiler, but um, it does not bode well, I'll say that much. Yeah, um, I don't know about the, 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 the I don't know if color plays a particularly large role, um, but I think it would be wrong to say it plays no role to me. Um, I think, especially as Mark has mentioned, that those 
segments, especially when you get to the latter part of the film, I do think they, they play quite a role. I think I, I think Mark hit upon it when he was talking about the idea of kind of descent and ascent and kind of like where characters are actually physically in relation to each other kind of gets to the the heart of the themes of the film i think there's obviously a lot of class issues going on here which is actually interesting because if you look at snoopy or sir bong's previous mm -hmm. film it actually deals with quite a lot of similar things in a very different way yeah. um but it is kind dealing of like with in quite a horizontal way yeah exactly instead of like Ascending and ascending. Yeah, moving, moving, yeah, moving forward to the tree. It's got yeah. that, like, it's, it's strange in that, that Snowpiercer had more kind of a sort of a, it felt a little bit like a, somebody combined one of his films with The Raid almost. It's kind of like that kind of like level progression. So this is a little bit more artfully done for my money, but it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely got similar things. The other person who's seen here is Betty. Um, Betty, what did you make of the film? Uh, obviously, we've got a few opinions here. I think they're all positive, but in terms of the roles that different things played, what was your biggest takeaway, would you say? Well, I think that after Cannes and the Oscars and the review so far, it's not going to be my contribution that is going to make anybody think, oh man, well now I really have to watch Parasite. But, and this might be a bit controversial, I thought it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> Shock. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I'm glad that you mentioned how difficult it is to talk about it because you get the most of it out of it going in completely blind. That being said, I've seen it twice already, uh, once back in January and the second time as recently as a couple of days ago. And the second viewing revealed something to me that I thought was very interesting. Um, so you've mentioned Park Chun-wook, and I feel like anyone who's seen The Handmaiden or say Old Boy might be familiar with this kind of film structure where everything is constantly escalating. And people would call that a twisty narrative structure, but not quite, because it's unexpected in a completely different way. Um, and I feel like it already within the first, say, 20 or 30 minutes is when this constant escalation begins. So there's really not much I can tell you about it plot-wise, but watching it a second time is pretty interesting because you know everything that's going to happen, and you become, you are now privy to what some of the things that you thought were completely inconsequential actually mean and actually signify. And we all know that films like that, films that are very tightly written, um, films that don't struggle with continuity at all, even though you feel like they should, given their complexity. Um, we all know that these are films that are greatly admired in general. And as you can imagine, these are films that are incredibly difficult to write, which is why I am, amongst other things, really pleased that Parasite uh, got an award for Best Original Screenplay, which went to Bong and his co-writer, Han Jin Won. If nothing else, it's obviously beautifully shot it's wonderfully cinematic, but also fantastically written. And I'm extremely pleased that Parasite has become one of those films that needs a separate Wikipedia page for all the accolades that it's receiving and it's been nominated for. I'm pleased that you've uh, you've brought up the, the structure of the film there, because I, I don't know what any of you, you folks thought, but the thing that kind of struck me about it, especially on a second viewing, is it does really, to me, almost feel like you've got two films joined together there's there's a segment in the middle and of course i'm going to have to talk about this obliquely but there's a segment in the middle which kind of signals a change from 
what was going on into something else, right? And there's there's quite a sharp change. For, for me, I don't know if it's actually a constant escalation. For me, that's then there is quite a sharp change. But the thing that I find quite impressive about it is it's very rare that I've come across a film which does that, which does this kind of like very abrupt change in what is going on. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to make it like, you know, flying saucers come down or something. I mean, obviously that's not what I'm talking about. But it's very rare to come across a film that makes that step change in what is going on and maybe even kind of the dynamics of the characters and actually makes that work without it being a jarring tonal shift or it being a jarring shift in what you maybe perceive the genre to be. Because to me, I thought this was a bit of a genre-bending film in the sense that you think it's one <laughs> thing and then it starts to blend in aspects of different types of cinema, different type of narrative, and... To me, it works, and I think that's probably why the screenplay ended up, uh, you know, winning as many things as it has. Because I think it does that really, rather well. Is that something that you folks picked up on, or is that just just me? This kind of like this idea of there being a step change at some point in the film. I'm actually kind of confused somehow because I mean, I hear so many people like saying genre bending and so on and so forth, but um, when first time I watched the film, um, I mean, I was totally into that. And uh, I've never perceived any change of pace or any change of genre, like, nowhere in the film. I, I think it was really structured and everything, like, uh, fit in the right place and was, like, very uh, tied together and very cohesive. And um, to be honest, I didn't perceive it, like, as it being one genre at first in the first half and then suddenly changing into something different like uh, midway uh, so every time I'm really confused and uh, I want to take this uh, the chance to ask you Jim so what do you think these different genres are like tied together inside Parasite because I'm well, th th well that th in, in some ways your, your confusion about what I'm saying speaks to what I'm saying right because that's the thing I don't think you do notice like a sudden shift that's, th that's the thing and you know there's little elements of the heist film here there's a little elements of the horror film there's little elements of the social drama and some of these things especially when you're dealing with them all simultaneously it could be quite a jarring shift mm. the key thing is it's not though and i think you're right it's very structured it mm. flows very nicely i think that the the bit i'm referring to in the middle where there's a step change is is more of a shift in character dynamics um mm. you think somebody is on top so to speak, um, and you think you've got an understanding of where the characters sit in relation to one another, and then basically something happens which kind of throws a firecracker into that scenario. Mm -hmm. Now after that, again, I don't think it's kind of like genre bending in the sense it's swinging wildly between them, but it's then when it starts to maybe lean more on some elements than it was. Like The, the initial part is more of the idea of you know, these little heist elements I've spoken mm -hmm. about and uh, social drama, and it starts to maybe shift away from that a little bit in the second half. But part of what makes this film so impressive and so entertaining is it does that with barely a wrinkle in your engagement in the film. So it's not that I think there is a shift. It's more it does blend those elements together very well. So I would say the fact that you've, sure. you're saying you've not perceived them, that's, that's basically my point, really. Okay, I think I'm going to say something, and then if it's a spoiler... I'm, I'm <laughs> honestly, I don't think it's a spoiler because what I'm gonna say doesn't happen in the film, so it could be like a spoiler. We've got we've, we've got the beep button at the ready. Okay, it's fine. cool. Yeah. So basically, uh, 
I haven't, I mean, as I said, I haven't seen any trailers, so I try not to know anything about the film as we should usually do. And um, so when I was watching the film, my idea of that was that I was kind of expecting like the, uh, the Kim family to kind of kill everyone in the, uh, in the Park family and then kind of like um, assume their own the, the identity of the Park family and try to live inside their house. So that was what I was expecting from the film. So when that didn't happen, I was like, okay, I mean, nothing weird going on here. I mean, I felt like the, uh, the dynamics of like, um, the class dynamics inside the film were pretty kind of common and what you can expect for something like that. Okay, the, the kind of parasitic relationship, fine. Wh whilst I take your point, <laughs> the, the idea that nothing weird goes on in this film is quite a remarkable one. <laughs> I mean, on top of like, well, they're trying to survive, so they're trying to just find a job, and uh, that's a very clever way of finding a job, like trying to recommend and, and kind of exploiting this, you know, the, 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 this thing of like, basically we live in this world where we need recommendations and we need like uh, referees and, and referrals and this kind of stuff. So they're just basically, uh, the kings are just exploiting this kind of society we are all living on. So uh, I felt like that was really clever, and to be honest, not unexpected. And, uh, and not even weird, just something really, really, really clever and smart. And I'm like, mm, maybe we should do that more often <laughs> without the ending of the film, of course. But <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> 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 no, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, I was watching that, expecting something different. And then I was like, oh yeah, cool, amazing. Like, like a critique to our society. So I think it was great, and uh, but didn't kind of feel felt any kind of like John banding or something so just while we're on the the topic of kind of the accolades it's hot right uh it's serena's assertion that nothing weird happens in the film aside and then chooses the most mundane aspect of the film to illustrate this but you know let's let's gloss over that shall we um what do we make of the acting performances? Now, the, the reason I'm bringing this up, of course, is because we're going to talk about the Oscars after we talk about this film. And what's quite remarkable about it is it got all these nominations, um, but it didn't get any as the acting uh, nominations. And that's not to say that it hasn't got them elsewhere. I think, um, I forget which Guild Awards it was, but it got an ensemble cast award somewhere. And for me, I would say that the like the outstanding, I mean, everybody's very good, um, but I would say the outstanding performances for me are uh, Song Kang-ho, who plays the father of the Kim family. I think he has a lot to do and then maybe has a lot of different interactions to deal with, and I think he deals with that really very well. And then after that, my personal highlight would probably be Park So-dam, who plays the daughter of the Kim family and is kind of the first one to kind of like work her way into the household after her brother. So, Mark, what, what, what did you make of that? Because I, I feel like these have kind of gone unacknowledged a little bit. Yeah, they have. Um, I would add, I, I completely agree about Park Sodam and about Song Kang-ho, who I want to talk about a little bit more because I, I love him. Um, but I'd also talk about um, Cho Yo-jong, who plays Mrs. Park. Um, she plays a very particular role, which is, um, she's kind of, I don't want to be mean, but she's kind of a zombified wine mum. Really, like she has nothing to do all day. She has a housekeeper to take care of her kids and take care of the take care of the home. Um, Nathan, her husband, Mr. Park, he's out all the time, so she doesn't really. She's got nothing to do. So you can, um, there's a throwaway line somewhere that she likes to get drunk during the day, and you're like, yep, absolutely, I can tell, because she's always asleep. 
We, we are in fact introduced to her asleep on a yeah, table, and I believe. And, and it's uh, like her her performance is so she's as you said, Min, um, Kiwi's friend describes Kiwi's friend describes her as pretty simple, and uh, a, you know everybody takes against her, but she it's performed so well. It's performed for comedy for for sure, but also elucidates a thing in the film, which is the way in which the as well as being a class critique, it's kind of a it doesn't emphasize this, but it is definitely there. It's a critique of patriarchy too, and um, the way in which Mr. Park just does not pay attention to her at all, which um, becomes a point of contention between uh, Kitek, Kim Kitek, and um, Mr. Park on their drives when he becomes a driver. Um, yeah, I love Sang Kang Ho's performance in this. He's um, he keeps on talking about plans. Plans are mentioned an awful lot in the film. And he speaks with a kind of reverence for his children and has a hope for his children that they will have some plan to get out of the semi-basement apartment that they're living in. And he sees this, uh, the belt of faith, as uh, Mrs. Park, as Mrs. Park puts it, um, as a chance to get out and to get to university, which Kiwu wants to. He says, "I'm gonna." Once he has the forged document that um, sister gives him, he says, uh, "I don't think if this is fraud fraudulence, I'm gonna come back and." actually attend this university and you can see the admiration in the father's eyes and um, there's also a moment later on which I won't go into in which he cries slightly and it's extremely moving um, and it's also worth mentioning that Song is probably like one of the biggest superstar actors in Korea and I hope this means that he's gonna get more appreciation in future. One thing that I find very admirable about Parasite that I don't think we've really mentioned yet is how funny it is without that ever being in dissonance with the rest of the tone of the film which is obviously very creepy actually very sad very bleak and at times even rage inducing but when i saw it in theaters there were people who managed to laugh from the very beginning till the very end of the film and i understand <laughs> I understand why that is the case. And that's, I think, something else that speaks to the quality of the acting is that there were so many things that were said in a way that was rather, that felt inundated with irony and with the intention of being funny while still being incredibly touching and incredibly moving. For example, the forged diploma scene, which gets a bit of a laugh out of you, but is also really bittersweet in a way. Yeah, I think you. I think you've uh, kind of the, the one thing we hadn't mentioned. You you brought up beautifully there, and I think that speaks to the whole blend of things that are going on. I find it hard to believe myself that somebody could watch this film and not get something out of it. Now, as is the way with these things, the things that win Best Picture and get bigged up. You know, there's quite a lot of hype around this, so. Whether somebody find is as blown away by it as I think a lot of us are, I don't know. But I find it hard to believe that somebody could go into this film and dislike it. While we're on the topic of people being blown away by it, we've got our resident Oscars fan uh, in Amanda. Hey, hey. Who, I like them all. Who, who, who loves the Oscars. I love awards. I love awards. I, 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 I want to win as, awards. As do though. I. I love to hate them. Um, <laughs> What what did you how did you find it at the Oscars? What did you take that like? Because this kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, nineteen seventeen was meant to win Best Picture by all reliable indicators. 
Um, I think the fact that it won, um, to me, also, and the and the response, the excitement, the excitement of people who were in the room, the excitement of people all around the world, um, that this is the first international film that won Isoplay. I think it shows, again, whether or not you love or hate this particular <coughs> um, the thing, how important on a world stage this this is, and how excited some... I think we all are that um, that that this group of people are finally recognizing international films, good films, and not just films that maybe had been, you know, given a little bit more um, marketing money in the New York Times. Here's my question, though: Did anyone predict it in the Cinetopia ballot? They did, and I think that's a nice segue into the fact that I have been um, the past couple of networking nights and our first Cinequiz did run a uh, Oscar ballot um, to ask everybody what they thought, and and we said we would announce it on this show. Um, so I know everyone's super excited. I believe half of you did one, and um, I know we're all just dying to know. Well, nobody in this room won. I didn't even win, um, and uh, Natalia. Well, we had a tie, so it was uh, it was two people who won, uh, Natalia Lewandowska, and I believe she also um, had another another uh, ballot. She was doing it at the film house, but also uh, Nele um, and I Wonk, I would say. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your uh, last name, but I will be emailing you both because you both got 15 out of 24, although did not expect. Um, parasite to win, so they did not choose a parasite as as that was not one of their winning um, ticks, if you will, from the ballot. Um, but again, I think we just had a lot of cynicism uh, towards um, uh, the Oscars, which I'm sure Jim. Why, can why, add you to. why are you looking at me when you say that, Amanda? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> why why are you looking at me when you say cynicism about the Oscars? On, on on what you think um, about this? I mean, you know, parasite winning's good. I mean, beyond, to be honest, the thing I was surprised about was the fact that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood didn't win a screenplay Oscar. Not because I wanted it to win. I think it's an overlong and self-indulgent mess, so it shouldn't have won a Oscar, but I'm su rather surprised it didn't. Um, it's, it's interesting when you look at the results, though, because if you look at what's won Best Picture over the past four years or so, there's a certain amount of surprises there actually because i mean that includes moonlight it includes the shape of water then you've got the aberration that is green book and then all of a sudden we've got uh parasite so to an extent like maybe the oscars is more surprising than i give it credit for but at the same time you know i don't know i i didn't really take anything from it um the, you know the the, the the acting nominations are still overwhelmingly white the directing awards are still overwhelmingly male um, you know, I mean, sure, it awards Parasite, but, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Well, I think that just about ends our Oscar <laughs> analysis. Um, you know, it seems we have a room. I don't think early. I'm going to be getting an invite anytime soon. No, no, I don't think you will be. Okay, and so we're back, and I'm here with Lily Sandlin, who is a filmmaker, so a film person of wearing lots of hats, and we'll be talking a lot about that. How are you today, Lily? Not bad, not bad. Enjoying the storm? Yes, exactly. Um, we've had a quite a stormy week, haven't we? Um, so tell me a little bit about um, your work in, in the film industry in Edinburgh. 
Um, well, uh, I've been in Edinburgh now for 15 years, wow. um, and I started out my career in film in London oh, uh, wow. in post-production and then came here to do my MFA and changed uh, radically into producing, because <laughs> I'm a masochist. <laughs> so I'm now working as a producer and production manager on uh, corporate promos, music videos, um, documentaries, and drama. So um, what made you move up to Edinburgh, and how would you, like, you're originally from Finland, correct? Yes. Yeah. So how, how do you kind of rate the um, Edinburgh film community? I mean, I know we talk a lot about that, um, uh, and, and how is it different than other cities you've worked in in the past? Um, Edinburgh is so much more inclusive and it's much easier to make connections here and it feels like a big happy family of filmmakers mm -hmm. um, rather than if you're in London where the competition so much harder than than here that you you kind of end up having to be a bit more selfish and use your elbows here you can actually contact people have a nice chat and there is a way of being able to support each other which kind of doesn't exist in a lot of uh, bigger cities. And one of the things I love is when I, I talk to all different people from different parts, they all know you. <laughs> it's just a very kind of small, um, but you've been working in the industry for so long. Um, uh, what would you say about the talent that the Scottish film industry have? You probably know many, many people who work in, in the Scottish film industry. I do partly as well because I've been doing quite a lot of visiting lecturing and I'm now a tutor at Edinburgh College of Art. Yeah. So I get to see the raw talent yeah. and help kind of, you know, hone them and, and develop their skills. And it's amazing to see them a few years later work in the industry. So there's a, a huge amount of talent here. Um, I think the biggest issue is that for a lot of them, um, they feel like they have to go to London or, or they return to countries that they're from. But there is still a lot of chance for them to create their own careers here and, and be very successful too. Yeah, and um, we have such great uh, universities. You're, you've been involved, like you just said, with the ECA, but you've also been involved in Napier as well. Correct. Um, so it, the, how, how do you think that translates in creating kind of a, a, a community of filmmakers? Um, I think it starts from the students working on each other's films and then kind of creating their little mini crews. And once they go into the industry and work in different capacities, whether it's camera or editing or directing or sound, they do tend to end up collaborating quite a lot. Um, and it continues. I've, I've got still, you know, connections from my first year here that I'm regularly still working with. And one of the nice things is that you've worked, I think, yeah, you like you work with them and over, the, over, over that time. And what would you say to, I mean, I, I really love how when you're at our networking events, how welcoming you are to everybody you meet, but how you're bringing in some of the students that you work with and sort of challenging them to meet new people and stuff. What would your number one advice be to someone who's n about to graduate and thinking about moving to London or staying in Edinburgh, like if they really do want to, and um, what, what would you usually say to your students? Uh, first of all, don't panic. It's okay <laughs> not to know what you want to do. Um, and secondly, um, have a five-year plan. You know, decide what department you want to work in and then network, 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 because it's really only... The only way to really get enough work is to get to know who's in the industry. Go and talk to people. They don't bite. <laughs> Why um, why producing for you? I mean, it, like you said, it is a bit of a, a, a tough job and probably um, some some people don't yeah, appreciate how much ha goes into it. But why do you love being a producer? Um, I think I love it because I'm a masochist and a control <laughs> freak and a bit of a mother as well, because in the end, the job is very much 
uh, taking care of your crews and your your cast um, being very organized but you do end up kind of you, you end up being the boss mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> um, and y- like you said you work on music videos and c- corporate videos and documentaries and narrative fiction um, which ones what I mean is there something that you need skills for to be a, nar- a narrative producer versus a documentary and which ones do you prefer to work on it's really all about being organized and being a storyteller mm-hmm. so it's not there's there's not an enormous kind of difference yes certain specific skills that you know you need more in tv or more if you're doing big budget you know corporate projects but in the end, it still it all comes down to storytelling and being creative. Well, Lily and I have been working together over the past year to to sort of build up this networking nights and master classes. And you have so much experience and so much uh, knowledge of who to who who to reach out to. So I'm super grateful for that. But we just started working on something together as well um, called um, the you know, well it's your uh, sort of project that you and a few other people um, are f- your first uh, pub quiz called Cinequiz. And can you tell me a little bit about how you came up with the idea to run your own pub quiz? Um, it's been a bit of a sort of pet dream of mine <laughs> for some time. I love pub quizzes. Yeah, it's so too. much fun to go to them. And then by chance, um, the owner of a pub asked me, oh, we've got this new venue and we've got some space. We're trying to think of something to do upstairs. And I just blurted out, oh, can we can we try a film quiz, please? <laughs> um, and so we had our uh, first one start of this month, um, and uh, it's going to be a monthly event now. Um, and you can find us on Facebook at uh, Cinequiz Edinburgh. Yeah, and it's um, Sophie Southside, and it's first Monday of every month. Um, but it turns out the the space that I mean, it's quite a big space up there. But we we took over the first half, and it was so busy, and <laughs> that it was we need we need a bigger boat. We need to use both sides. I think Absolutely. right. Absolutely. So it's expanding already. After, you know, after its first uh, session, so we will have an Eventbrite um, system as well for the next one, so we can kind of uh, gauge how many people want to come and to make sure that those who do book get a seat because it was a bit of a scramble getting some extra stools and things <laughs> last time i was just exciting that there were that many people excited about it and um and everyone who i talked to really enjoyed it i was part of a team who did quite well we were number two but it was very very hard and 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 i also i mean i'm not always i mean i, I review films here and and whatnot but i'm not always of knowledge of all things film um and it really did test a knowledge our, our team's knowledge and it was surprising who could bring in what and and whatnot but um, wh- wh- what kind of like breadth and lo- wh- what's just sort of your idea on the film quiz in terms of like different questions or, or, or rounds and things like that that you, you try to make sure it's, it's full and, and, and challenging, if you will? Well, to make it fun, we've got a picture round. We also have a sound round instead of a music round. So sounds from uh, films, which actually that was the challenging one, definitely. Yeah. Um, but we have a theme every month. Um, so this one's this month's one was uh, Valentine's Day Massacre, yeah. uh, and next month is globe trotting. Yeah, and then we have uh, uh, various ones. April Fools, May the Fourth be with you. So mm-hmm. that they are always, you know, their themes, and we try and make sure that the questions are suitable for any 
age the kind of film audiences so it's not just for for teenagers not just for the oldies and every possible genre yeah and i really i really loved the sound round as well i thought it was very hard the quiet place really got stumped very us difficult <laughs> i think very everyone very just sat there going <laughs> what, is, what this? is it and then i mean it was great and then what was really fun about it also afterwards is that it that you show the clips and reveal it and you can just completely put it put two and two together so it's really interactive it's really fun and as you said first monday of every month at sophie southside upstairs um the next one will be globe trotting and it's um the second of march monday and it's at 7 p.m arrive right 7 p.m arrive and then we'll start the quiz at 7 30. yeah and make sure you arrive early because as we had experienced last time there were um it, it was it was quite tight we got everybody in but we but we all um but it is quite popular so look forward to seeing you there So I'm back with Lily, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the other things that you do. Um, particularly, let's talk about um, Iberodox. You're the marketing director this year for Iberodox, correct? Um, this year, I'm dealing with marketing and communications. Marketing and communications, yeah. Um, and this year is the seventh edition of wow. the, the festival already. Mm -hmm. And it's a very new thing for me to be involved with uh, film festivals, because I'm usually the one that brings my brings own films, films there. Yeah. So it's quite interesting to see the, the kind of like the behind the scenes. Um, but it's a very exciting festival, um, especially because it does end up covering such a huge range of films and events as well. So the ethos is really about um, bringing Ibero-American culture to uh, Scottish audiences and uniting uh, people with Portuguese, Brazilian, you know, Spanish backgrounds mm -hmm. um, to also celebrate their own culture. Yeah, so it's Ibero Doc, so it's mm. predominantly, it's all documentaries, correct? Mainly documentary, although we've got um, a new strand um, this year, two new strands. Uh, one is Beyond Docs, where basically filmmakers who have made documentaries before uh, and in um, uh, our uh, two films cases have screened films before uh, Ibero Docs, they're bringing in uh, more fictionalized films, but still with a very sort of uh, strong reality mm -hmm. element to them. And another strand we have is diving into the archives, which um, is actually looking at two very famous Spanish artists, uh, author Miguel Delibes uh, and uh, Louis Buñuel. So we, are, we have some really interesting events and, and film screenings happening as part of that one. Um, and this year's um, themes are isolation, colonialism, and migration. So all the films have a bit of a link to these oh themes wow. as well. Um, so we interviewed Mar last year to talk about the sixth and the seventh. Um, you just mentioned a couple of things to look forward to, but um, tell me a little bit about what what you think um, people should know about Iberodox and, and which events that they should, when are the dates and, and which, which one should they maybe start thinking about going to? So we open on the Wednesday 26th of February in Edinburgh. Okay. And we run till the 11th of March in Edinburgh. And then we move to CCA in Glasgow, where we have uh, events running till the 15th of March. Oh so wow. it's a good stretch of uh, programs yeah. and things. 
Yeah. It's really nice to have um, the CCA and like and at, at your disposal so you can be running those signed programs for multiple different audiences, both in Glasgow and Edinburgh. But you can see it at the Cameo, right? And Film House. And we have uh, screenings also at the Edinburgh College of Art, mm-hmm. um, panel discussions, various events. So we have exhibitions, uh, a Spanish language book launch as well, which is very, very interesting. Um, and yeah, quite a lot of uh, music-related things this year as well. We have uh, an amazing DJ filmmaker, Rita Maya, um, coming, and she opens the festival with her film Lisbon Beat, um, which is then followed by uh, a party with her and a panel discussion. So that's three events, all part of that one. Yeah, and you have a documentary on Fela as well. Yes, yeah. my friend Fela. So that's all, all Fela Kuti's life, an amazing Nigerian musician yeah. looking at his life. And then the the films that you were talking about, um, uh, like Boonwell, was it, tell me a little bit about that event. Isn't there a live score involved or something? There is, yes. So uh, in Edinburgh, Cameo, 7th of March, we do a double bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a feature documentary, um, a feature animation, uh, which is absolutely stunning. It's just won a bunch of different awards around the world. Uh, and that's followed by a Louis Buñuel's 1936 um, short documentary with a live score by uh, two Spanish musicians who've specifically written this score uh, for this screening. Great. Um, so, it, so you definitely need to go check out Iberodocs um, starting on the 26th of February. Um, Lily, after Iberodocs, it sounds like you have a really busy spring coming up. Any ex- exciting projects you're looking forward to? Actually, I'm going to go uh, slightly sideways, and <laughs> I've actually got a crafts problem uh, project coming up. Oh, really? Very, very interesting kind of uh uh, change from films uh, yeah. for a couple of months. Oh, great, but you'll still be uh, teaching and uh, and we'll be Cinequiz and then hopefully um, we're working together on a new um, project um, d- uh, starting up uh, master classes for our networking nights as well so you can see Lily at those as well. <laughs> hopefully you'll be at all yeah. of them. <laughs> and it should be interesting because we'll, we'll be taking people from different departments. Yeah. So our department would be um, production designer, props person, special effects, and then they do a little panel discussion and, and same thing with camera department. And, and you've been talking about bringing in screenwriters as well because that's something that students and, and people interested in film also don't really get access to writers. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I've been talking to David about who runs these screenwriting sessions at Cameo every other week, week, weekend, is we're gonna maybe maybe talk about the business of screenwriting. So, you know, a lot of people might have an idea of, of a script or be you know, have learned that, but they don't necessarily know you know, how do they get an agent or do they get an agent that they actually get a producer or all those things that you might might be asked a lot at the beginning or be thinking about a lot to sort of get yourself on the career. But that's our, uh, sort of our idea with these master classes is to kind of bridge the gap of allowing for, you know, sharing information from professionals to, you know, semi-professionals and people who are just getting in the business um, and being able to ask these questions and kind of an informal thing and then be able to network after. Absolutely, the most important part of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Lily, so much for taking the time um, to hang out with us today. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you at Docs and Cinequiz. So the next uh, film we're going to review is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is coming out on the 28th in the UK and definitely at Filmhouse. Um, so, uh, Carice, tell us a little bit about this film. 
So Portrait of a Lady on Fire is French auteur Céline Siama's fourth written and directed by a feature credit to date. Uh, it's a departure from her previous thematic trilogy of coming-of-age dramas um, and has taken a bold new step into the world of period drama. The film opens with Marianne, played by Noemi Malon, making a journey by boat um, to the home of Heloise and her mother, Adele, and Adele Hanel and Valeria Galino, respectively. Artist Marianne has been tasked with the seemingly impossible job of painting a portrait of Heloise, who has already sent multiple artists home in vain. Heloise's mother has conjured up the smart initiative to have Marianne pose as a mere companion to Heloise and paint the portrait in secret. Heloise herself drifts mysteriously about the airy and empty manor and the island that surrounds, wearing a long hooded cape cloaked from the gaze of Marianne and the audience themselves. When Heloise and Marianne's eyes finally do meet, we are pulled heart first, heart first into an honest, complete and deep reaching love story that explores female friendship and solidarity just as effectively as it explores love. Uh, I'm a big fan of this film. Um, I think uh, I was even more impressed by it than I expected. I think it's a, um, uh, like I say, it's a, it's a big departure from some of the settings and some of the stories that um, Celine Siama's worked with previously. Um, and it's just a very neat, well-written, well-developed, thoughtful piece of filmmaking. What do you think, Amanda? No, it grabbed me from the very beginning just because of its beauty. I think the cinematography, I forgot the name of the woman who, um, Claire Maton, absolutely stunning. And it made, you know, it, it is a portrait. It's a, like a film that made me feel like I was in a portrait, like a Vermeer or something like that. It was just quite absolutely stunning in the colors and, and whatnot. So, but it was really such a heartfelt um, film as well. I just loved the, their story and it, it made me cry a little bit. <laughs> so... Yes, I would, I would admit to crying too, um, page 28 to those who know. Um, I'd say that the film, where the film is, I hate to use this word, but it, it has to be used, I think, where the film sort of encroaches upon genius is how all the different units of meaning in the film are all in direct conversation with each other. Because Marianne is a painter, she's painting Eloise's uh, subject for a portrait that's going to be sent to a Milanese suitor. So it's entering into an art historical discourse of hiddenness because if women painters were more uh, more prevalent and greater in number, the scenes in the film, the compositions from the film would be exactly the sort of things that would be adorning the walls of art galleries everywhere. So there's that, that's a huge thing immediately. But there's also an aspect of hiddenness in the way in which the scenes where they're painting, where um, Marianne is painting, there's, um, the the subject is internalizing the artist as well as the artist internalizing the subject and we can't not mention that this is a queer lesbian romance what's the story of queerness in the 18th century as now but the story of being hidden and that immediately speaks to the th um the sort of consistent trait in the film which is discussing orpheus the story of orpheus and eurydice um which is a story of people refusing to be hidden which is exactly what the film is and serena what's your thoughts on the film well, I watched it just once, and uh, it happened in London, <laughs> and during the uh, the London Film Festival, and um, it was such an amazing experience, to be honest. And um, I think most of all, it was because um, when I was watching the film, I felt like I was kind of represented on screen, and it's something that it didn't, it never happened to me before. And um, I mean, it was such a great experience, to be honest. And I remember I. Um, 
just um, walk out the screen and I was basically still crying. And uh, I met a friend of mine and he was like in the same state as mine. And uh, we, we look in each other's eyes and we were like, oh my God, we, what we just witnessed, it was such a, an amazing film. And um, so, yeah, I mean, everything was great in it. it I, can't even, I don't even know what to say, to be honest, but yeah, you know, the female gaze and finally no men around. It was such a great film. I mean, and yeah, and yeah, the, the lesbian love story at the center, it was so incredibly developed and it felt like so real. And um, you, you could almost feel you were together with them and uh, everything Mark said is, is right. I mean, uh, female women haven't, haven't been represented like in, in hearts for so many years and uh, we're still not really represented right now. And so, uh, I mean, everything in there was so political so uh, not aggressively political, but still political. And it was amazing, an amazing face, to be honest. It was just great. And I also really loved, as you discussed, Mark, and um, this idea about painting, but also sort of the collaboration of, of painting. And so for me, it was um, the, their relationship building into this um, beautiful artwork happening that I thought was was quite quite lovely as part of the story. It, for sure, and it was great to be honest to see finally um, this kind of kind of the uh, disrupting and dismantling the idea of like the artist and the muse. So finally, the muse is not objectified anymore, and uh, the female gaze is like a more gentle than a, a male gaze because it, it doesn't want to exploit the other the other person, but just it kind of wants to embrace it. And uh, it was, I mean, yeah, as I said, it was just great. I mean, I'm repeating myself. Uh, I feel like I'm super dumb, but actually um, I've arrived better than I thought. And, uh, but yeah, it was great. <laughs> no, you loved it. I loved it. I didn't have much more other than to say I was absolutely blown away with it. Betty, what were your thoughts of, of this film? So I feel like in the last couple of years, and when I say that, I mainly mean the 2010s, there has been, I, I don't know if I would call it a surge, but it has become a bit more commonplace to create period pieces that include a queer romance in it, or if not a queer romance per se, at least the acknowledgement of the existence of LGBT people. Um, even films like, say, The Favorite uh, do this, The Handmaiden, which was already mentioned, The Danish Girl, The Imitation Game, films like that, and I think out of all of these films, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is perhaps the most successful in actually portraying a lesbian romance, in the sense that I felt the film was rather simple. I don't think um, Celine Siamo really went much further than telling a very simple love story, but in telling it, it was in incredibly successful in making it seem very organic and genuine. You feel like you like you're watching them fall in love in, you know, so-called real time. It's happening in front of your eyes in a way that doesn't seem contrived. It doesn't seem forced. It's um it's not made into this melodramatic, incredibly noble story about two queer people who overcame historical social adversity or anything. They just fell in love and that 
goes in various directions that has more to do with their intimate feelings than about this um this necessity to create a martyrdom story out of two lesbians which is something that i really admire uh the film for i watched a q a with celine siama and when asked what prompted her to to create the film she said that first and foremost she wanted to just make a love story but also make a story about the memory of love which i thought was very touching um because i think that without going into too much detail the film really portrays the sort of emotional I guess you could call it like a patina kind of feel, mm -hmm. uh, the emotional patina of a romance that had a massive influence on you as a person. I also got a little bit choked up, which um, I have to admire the film for, you know, getting into the frozen cockles of my small black heart. Um, I am very glad that we sort of got into the discussion um, about the discourse of visuality in the film, because I think most people who write about film will derive this conclusion from any film any film that's sort of meta in the way that it treats an aesthetic subject but portrait of a lady on fire i think is very upfront with what it's trying to do and the way it's trying to think visuality and representation yeah absolutely and i really love what she said about this real time falling in love um and also the moments of love from memory to the beginnings of of a relationship to what the visual you know the, what the eyes and what happens and that all of that's captured so effectively um and really really amazing Chris, any final thoughts yeah i guess one other thing that i wanted to say um beyond what everyone else has really wonderfully pulled out um as soon as I finished watching this film, um, the BAFTAs came on and I, I flicked over and it was running through um, a, a clips reel for, I think it was the, the acting award. And this isn't at the discredit of any of those films that were being seen, but what I was struck by is how much dialogue there was in all of those clips that were being shown from these um, nominees. And it made me sort of realize in contrast quite how, um, held back Celine Siama is with the dialogue in, in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's really, it's a, it's a film of lots of body gestures um, and um, shared looks between um, the, you know, the two leads, but also other characters that surround them. And yeah, and I think that's probably something that adds to what everyone sort of said in terms of how simple and effective the film is, um, that she's not got distracted with lengthy, exposition that she's not got distracted with lengthy exposition about what love is and how the characters feel she just sort of lets the moment and the pauses and the looks kind of speak for themselves mm -hmm. absolutely well we highly um unanimously recommend that you go see it when it comes out in theater so um please do Okay, so we're going to do a new segment for this show, and we'll hopefully try and make it a regular thing going forward. But basically, everybody who's involved with this show has a very keen understanding and enthusiasm for short film. Indeed, two of the people in the studio are, in fact, you know, key members of running the Edinburgh Short Film Festival itself. So we thought it would be a good idea to recommend short films 
on the podcast because there are quite a lot, especially some that are even award-winning and have played a lot of festivals that are freely available online uh, legally, and you can go and view them and see some of the best short films that are out there, either from recent history or even from a little bit uh, a little bit longer ago. So basically what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and recommend a short film, but we're going to keep the recommendation short. So for any of you who hammer on to the timestamps on the podcast and think we go on a bit too much, stick with this segment because the idea is that we're going to try and keep our recommendation of the film and why you should go see it to about a minute or less. Um, The idea being in keeping with the idea of it being a short film. So first of all, Amanda... Uh, I believe you've chosen one to recommend. What's your recommendation for a short film people should check out this month? Um, I'm recommending the one that won the best animated short film for the Oscars this year. Um, I I was keen to watch it because I wasn't actually watching the Oscars. I was watching a commentary about the Oscars, and the gentleman who was giving the commentary was rooting for this film. And then I went back online to f- check it out. Hair Love is about um, a young girl um, and her father uh, working together to get her ready um, and because she's an African-American has, you know, very difficulty sort of working with her hair. But it's done in such a beautiful way that shows how um, a father and daughter's love comes together. And I won't give away the end, but it's it's absolutely beautiful about family. But really it's about... Um, and and I think the the, the response um, and the people who won the the animators who won um, is really about showing representation on on the screen of, um, for young people and it's it's certainly a really lovely tale um, for a young person to watch. I just think it's adorable. I think it's worth your watch. That was exactly a minute. Wow. And she, she wasn't even holding a stopwatch. That is absolutely <laughs> incredible. Absolutely incredible. Mark, uh, I believe you've got a short film that you would like to recommend. What's your pick for this month? The short film I want to recommend for this month is Blue by Pichapong Weirasethical. Um, the Thai filmmaker is one of my favourite filmmakers working at the minute, and he does have a film coming out later in the year called Memoria, starring Tilda Swinton, which would be a good time to watch it. Um, it's a very it's a 12 minutes long, but a very simple premise in a way. Um, it was a woman asleep in a forest. Uh, she's in a bed in a forest, um, asleep beneath a blue quilt. Um, the quilt slowly begins bursting into flame. It's a very, very small flame to begin with. And as it gently crepitates, there's a, a scroll in front of her, um, sort of like a, a theatrical backdrop on a scroll, which is slowly being rung up and down by someone we don't see, or maybe no one. And um, as this is happening, the sounds of the forest just begin to burl up and up and up, and the sound design mixes these different elements of the fire and the cricket sounds and then the the scroll to a wonderful lulling effect also exactly a minute i think i think mark mark, mark was probably cramming a lot in there he said see, he needs, he needs a bit of time to recover after that i think um Chris, i believe you got a recommendation as well yes yeah, so my shot this week is the fall uh freely available on the bbc iplayer it's jonathan glazer's most recent film and is allowing all of us jonathan glazer fans to deal with the fact that we've not seen a film from him in quite a few years uh it's a nightmarish film in its purest and most simple form the cast is populated entirely by masked individuals who set whose set expressions evoke the horror of michael myers and the purge it's a hunt followed by an execution and the rest i'll leave to the viewer to discover 
and sees Glazer collaborating once again with Mika Levy, who he worked with for uh, Under the Skin, and who produces a discordant, pulsing soundtrack that sets the film's pace and descent into darkness. Very good. So it's now my turn, and it's probably apt that I need to keep this review short, because the, the short film I am recommending is only two minutes and 20 seconds long. Oh, I thought I thought Amanda was gesturing so in the studio, but it's just uh, a ticking ticking clock. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wind the clock <laughs> down a little bit. Just gonna wind just gonna wind the clock down a little bit, just as a, an act of protest. No, right. The short film I'm recommending, and I have to do it in 30 seconds now, is Enough, which is directed by Anna Mantzaris, and it's a sort of a stop motion animation. Uh, with people who are seem to be made of kind of felt or some sort of soft material, and it's basically people getting to the end of their tether. They're given up and they're just having none of it with the people around them. It is very funny. It is actually quite touching, melancholic, and it crams that all into less than two and a half minutes. It's available on Vimeo. Check it out. All right, so that's my recommendation, breathlessly uh, delivered. Uh, Paul, you are probably the, the, you're the, you're the real short film authority in the room. So, what's your recommendation? Uh, I think I'll go with Fov by Jeremy Comte, which won our best film last year. Uh, it's a wonderful drama, very intense drama, um, coming of age drama kind of thing. It's about two young boys who go playing in Quebec, in um, or in a remote rural part of Quebec, and um, there it's. I don't want to do it. You know, Spoilers alert, but uh, they go uh, playing in a quarry, and of course, uh, if any of us have watched public information films from the 1970s, you'll be familiar that the one thing you shouldn't do is go playing in a quarry when you're a young child. So needless to say, there's a, a, a tragedy, and um, uh, one of the young, the young boys who, uh, who survives uh, goes to find help and so on, and it's, it's beautifully dealt with, it's touching, it's got amazing cinematography, it makes the quarry look like a fantastic, um, almost um, um, alien landscape, uh, uh, beautiful, beautifully filmed, beautifully acted, a wonderful performance by a very young actor, I recommend it's online now. I wasn't timing you a bit, but it is a bit. That is a very good short film, so that we'll we'll maybe give a bit of a bit of leeway. So if you want to check out any of those shorts, uh, we will post links to them in the description of the podcast, and also when we are talking about this section on social media. So keep an eye out for them. And next month, we'll hopefully have a whole new batch for you to check out. So that's about all for this month's Cinetopia on EHFM. We'll be back sooner than usual with our Glasgow Film Festival preview episode, so keep an eye out for that. However, our regular show will be back in March. You can find out more about our upcoming events, networking nights, and all the shows by following us on Twitter at Cinetopia, Instagram at Cinetopia Hub, and CinetopiaShow.com. Till next month, goodbye and enjoy the weather.